Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7 this morning. Romans chapter 7. It's a privilege to be here this morning. I've uh, heard of your church and uh, uh, passed by it several times, but I've actually never, never been here, so I'm very honored to be here. I've known Jacob for quite a few years now, uh, have known the family and so forth, uh, so we went to a few classes together, not a, not a ton, but we did uh, uh, meet up a few times in seminary and so forth, so uh, this morning uh, I'm, I'm probably more of a teacher than a preacher, uh, I've taught uh, in the, the school setting now for going on 14 years, um, and one of my burdens is is uh, teaching the youth. The junior high and the senior high is primarily who I have. I teach seventh through eighth or seventh through twelfth grade. Uh, I see the I see the Caramons in the back there. I teach with their son Rodney. I see my dad back there as well. So glad that uh, he could make it. Um, so I've taught on that level for quite a few years, and I count it a privilege to do so. Always in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking to myself, how can I help the kids to grow in godliness? How can I help them to understand the, uh, the issues of the Christian walk, the, uh, the day-in, day-out struggle that the Christian life truly is, and how I can help them uh, to, to be able to succeed, to be able to grow, and so forth? One of the greatest dangers and one of the greatest, uh, perhaps, uh, for me, uh, you know, tragedies in some of these kids' lives is for many of them to get to a point in their Christian walk, uh, perhaps graduate and move on into college, and to move away from Christ, to abandon the things that they've been taught and not continue in that. And I've always thought, how can we best teach kids uh, to embrace Christ, obviously at an early age, and to grow with fruitfulness that is obvious of what the Spirit is actually doing in their heart and for them to continue with that. I came across a few years ago, my wife uh, actually sent it to me. It was an individual that she had gone to school with. Uh, she had uh, graduated college with, they were friends. He had married uh, her best friend in college, one of her roommates and so forth. And they, uh, he was on a track much like myself, went through seminary, he was at a different seminary, and they moved to a place and, uh, and continued his education, his formal education. And they moved from a really a Baptist background, a Protestant Orthodox background, and, and actually started to attend and fully has embraced a, a Greek Orthodox mindset. And I knew that that was happening, and I didn't know him that well. I probably uh, you know, had wished that I had talked with him to see what, what led him there. But my wife actually sent me this uh, blog post that he had that actually explains why he left biblical Christianity and embraced something really outside of, of uh, orthodoxy, even though it's called Greek Orthodox. And this is what he says. I'm in the very early stages of thinking about writing something about orthodoxy, primarily directed to the inquirer. There are so many books introducing uh, orthodoxy that I'm wary of doing it. If it happens, I'm going to approach a little different than the standard apologetic for orthodoxy, using historical and theological arguments. Those are great, and I, I don't think I would have been here uh, if it were not for those books. However, as I reflect on my journey, 
as well as others, I realized that although the academic arguments are helpful, there were other reasons that moved me along. So he's explaining now why he moved from his background uh, to a new background outside of Protestantism. He says here, for example, part of the search that landed me in Greek Orthodoxy was the struggle of the Christian life. Always looking for another book or formula that could help me lead the victorious Christian life left me frustrated. I was attracted to the mystical element of Christianity, and that led me to some of the early church fathers. I was struck by their depth of spirituality and their love. This is part of what brought me to orthodoxy and has kept me there. It's an interesting, it's an interesting analysis of why this individual who was raised Baptist in a Protestant background, Orthodox background, and actually abandoned that. And he gives a, a glimpse of why he did that. And that is the struggle of the Christian walk, the struggle of the Christian life. Now it is interesting because when you, you know, really think through your yourself and your growth that you have had, uh, however long that you've been saved, it is filled with struggle. It is filled with just almost a daily slugfest with your flesh, with temptation, with the issues that arise from time to time, and as we see in the scriptures. Oftentimes it's easy for us to think that we're alone or we're different than everybody else, but we're not alone. When you look at the scriptures and you you analyze both the Old and the New Testaments, you can't help but think that there were struggles and some very deep struggles in people's hearts and in people's lives as they wrestled with these types of things that we do. Abraham lied on several occasions. Lied to Abimelech, lied to the Pharaoh. Isaac lied to Abimelech. Moses became angry and struck the rock and was actually the consequences was his not going into the land of promise. Aaron offered a golden calf. David committed both adultery and murder. Solomon committed really the same. Uh, Peter acted like a hypocrite. Thomas doubted Christ. John and James wanted selfish honor with Christ even to the point of calling down calling down uh, fire or lightning from heaven to consume the, the, those who did not believe. And that's really just a sampling of struggles that individuals faced inside of their Christian walk, the battle with the flesh, and the different issues that were there. One of the things that we probably should come to very early on uh, inside of our, our Christian walk is almost a spiritual reality. And that's hard to come by because oftentimes in our thinking, once I become a believer, once I have faith in Christ, that things actually become easier. There's a sense in which they do because by faith now I have a hope that I did not have before. But I have a new set of struggles that I never had before either. When we were outside of Christ, when we didn't know Christ, sin came naturally. Now sin is a struggle. Sin is something no longer that I look at as uh, perhaps even when I was unsaved and I stop in action, I look at it because this is going to mess up my life or this is hindering me from my job or something along that line, to now having Christ and, and Christ and his spirit filling our hearts, now I, I analyze things a bit differently. Now this struggle is much deeper, and now it could cost me much greater in my love for God and my understanding of my faithfulness to him. So the battle, the battle really is, is raging. And I think that it's raging here with the Apostle Paul. Notice in Romans chapter 7, 
some of the things and some of the statements that the Apostle Paul makes concerning himself. Verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing episode, really, that the Apostle Paul, the, the Apostle, really, of Apostles, the, the man responsible for the churches, uh, ultimately in Asia Minor, the Gentile churches and so forth, the man that, that I would regard as the pinnacle of a Christian, saying, this is a deep, deep struggle, even with me. When I want to do good, the struggle is there. It's always there, present in me. The wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Notice as he further says in verse 19, For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? We'll get to the last part uh, momentarily, but you, you, you hear the Apostle Paul in his explanation of this indwelling sin and the battle that he faces on a daily basis. And it's, it's not a warfare that comes and goes. It's a warfare that's constant. It's right there present with me at all times. Uh, when he wants to do good, evil is right there. When he wants to do evil, he's got the other side of wanting to do good and that, and that really almost a spiritual schizophrenia going on in Paul's heart all of the time. Almost two people constantly at war inside of his heart. And the Apostle Paul calls himself in verse 24, wretched man that I am. So several different things as we, as we re- reflect on growing in the Christian walk the first thing that we really need to recognize inside of our hearts is this battle is real and this battle is going to exist and this battle must be fought against. So I have to understand several different things. I need to recognize that the the battle does actually exist within my very being, within my heart. And as I look at Romans chapter 7, several different principles stand out to us. First, sin living in us Paul calls it a law. Sin living in us is a law. Paul uses law as a metaphor. Really, the metaphor is expressing the very power and authority that this law of sin actually holds, even within the, the heart of the believer. Now, is it, is it something that the believer cannot overcome? And the answer is no, because I think he comes up with the answer, the ultimate answer in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. He comes to the spiritual reality that the only answer is Christ. That this this relationship that he has with Christ is really the, the core of why this battle can actually be overcome and will eventually be overcome finally and forever. But this law that he sees inside of him 
is the is the sinfulness, really the principle of sin that he has uh, within him. Several years ago, I heard an illustration. It's a it's an interesting one. If I were to hold my hand up and say that this was blood, you would you would look at me and say, no, that's that's a hand. But every single part of this hand, if it's not touched and affected by blood, it's going to decay. It's going to develop gangrene and, and actually uh, really uh, have to be amputated. Why? Because although this is a hand, there's not a part of it that's not touched with blood in one sense or the other. And really the, the principle inside of Paul is that even when I want to do good, sin is present. It's a, it's a law. It's a principle inside of me that is always there. We find this law when we're at our best. We find this principle of affection for the flesh even when we're at our best. We've probably experienced this. And I think that oftentimes the, the, the writers of the Scriptures and those who were in the Scriptures reflected upon this same thing. And that is the greatest victories oftentimes are coupled with what? Some of the greatest defeats. And that is when, when uh, we look at the lives of, of individuals, uh, even those individuals that uh, at the height of what God was doing in the world through Jesus Christ, you have Peter denying him. Peter, just several, several minutes really before Jesus was arrested and taken into custody, what was Peter saying? Lord, I'll die with you. I'll go to the end with you. And within a few short moments, really, the Apostle Peter was denying Christ and denying him vehemently. Uh, so this, this, this law is there even when we're at our best. It's always there governing at times even our own conduct. And the law of sin never rests. The law of sin never rests. It's always there. It will creep up at the most unexpected times. Temptation, temptation is like that. David learned that. A man that, that should have known better, a man after God's own heart, really was in a, in a place and a time that he should not have been. He should have been out battling God's battles again and continuing to fight for the, really the kingdom. And he chose to stay home. And while on a rooftop, he saw something that he should not have seen. It appealed to him, and he fell. So the law of sin never rests. It's, it's relentless. It'll wait you out. It'll wait all of us out. When, when I think that I am doing well spiritually, uh, one of the cautions is always, okay, Lord, give me grace for the next battle that I face. Why? Because I know that battle is going to come. So we need to recognize, in my Christian walk, I will not grow in Christ unless I really understand the spiritual reality of my fight with sin. It's really impossible to do that. I can't grow unless I'm dealing with the very thing that is going to keep me from growing. So we recognize that the battle exists within us. Secondly, we need to recognize the plans of the flesh and commit to fight against the flesh at every turn. We need to recognize the plans of the flesh. Now this is, this is a, a part really that we have to understand how does the flesh fight against us so that I can develop strategies of fighting back against my own flesh. I found these, these uh, interesting uh, these are not my own. I'm not that creative to come up with these on my own. But several of these phrases actually caught my eye in a book I was reading several years ago. And I thought they were very helpful 
in just identifying, maybe not all of these would apply to myself or to you, but they certainly do apply in, in different ways for different people. The first, the first thing that we recognize is that the flesh knows how to eat an elephant. The flesh knows how to eat an elephant. This really is, is the, the idea, and we've probably all, all heard this before, uh, how do you eat an elephant? You eat it one, one bite at a time, uh, usually the, the elephant uh, being large and so forth. But it can be eaten. It just has to be broken down, obviously, into many, many, many smaller parts so that it can be eaten. The flesh knows how to do this. I don't know if you've ever thought this or said this, perhaps. Uh, I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I just said that. That that just came out of my mouth. I can't believe that I just said that. If you haven't had that experience, uh, probably most of us at, at one point or another will. And that is that our flesh, our flesh at times is so captivating and is so relentless in its pursuit to destroy us that we'll come to a phrase in our heart or that, that phrase in our, in our minds, I can't believe that that just happened. Why? Because the, the flesh, the flesh knows how to wait us out. It knows how to take something very big, break it up into smaller parts so that at the end I'm like, wait a second. I just did that. I just said that. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we're, we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin in and of itself is a deceiver. That's why it's effective. It's the master magician. It is, the, it is the, the wool over our eyes to make us believe something that actually is not even there. It promises pleasure, but it never actually delivers in its fullness. Why? Because it's the master deceiver. And one of the elements for us in our Christian growth, amongst ourselves, amongst others that we know, would be to encourage one another. If we see a brother or a sister who is, who is falling to a sin, then we encourage them. So that in the course of time, that sin will not blossom and grow into the size of an elephant and actually overcome us. The second plan of the flesh that we need to recognize is the flesh dresses us up in tuxedos and evening dresses. The flesh dresses us up in tuxedos and evening dresses. This really is a picture of external religion and really an internal relationship. You know, oftentimes in our, in our spiritual walk, and I think all of us are guilty of this type of thing, and that is we, we most of the time look okay on the outside. When I'm, when I'm looking at people in my own church, when they're looking at me, uh, we, we tend to look outside. But I learned, I learned something very quickly. Um, I've been teaching, like I said, in the high school setting, junior high, high school setting, uh, about, I guess it's been four years now, uh, one of my children sat in my, in my class for the first time. My son Justin, is, he is now in the 10th grade, uh, but he came in as a 7th grader. So here's Dad up teaching in a class, and I go home, and he really knows me. He knows when I get angry. He knows what makes me angry. 
He knows if I'm inconsistent. He knows pretty much everything. And one of the things that I, I quickly learned, and I'm sure uh, Pastor Elward learns this as well, when, when you're here or when you're on a platform teaching the Word of God, you've got nowhere to run and hide at home. You can look great in front of everybody. You can, you can put the tie on. You can shine the shoes. But at the end of the day, if, if we think that we can just look good on the outside and let our, let our heart go and the, the deceitfulness that all of us face, it will come out. And really the, the issue here is hypocrisy. Having, having an outer shell of religion but really no inner relationship. And the, and the flesh loves to do that. The flesh loves to get you to think that you are a somebody, and in your heart you're really not. So the flesh dresses us up. It, it makes us feel almost religious and, and right with God because of the things that are going on. While I go to church, I'm an active part of my church. In the inner reality, oftentimes, we're being overcome by the flesh in specific ways. And it's something for us always to be concerned with, that the way that I'm living my life, the way that I'm thinking, the way that I am conducting my life is the same around everybody. Why? Because the flesh wants us to think differently. Thirdly, we need to recognize that the flesh sends us down rabbit trails. The flesh sends us down rabbit trails. The flesh loves to do this, get us off of the main goal, oftentimes. And an interesting episode in uh, 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 11 and verse 3, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That your mind will be led astray. Isn't it easy in life oftentimes to be bogged down with things that are somewhat insignificant and to really miss the big picture, really miss the main, the main purpose of life? Illustration of Mary and Martha. We're somewhat familiar with that. Mary and Martha have invited Christ to come and to dine with them. You have the episode in which Martha is very concerned about the episode, and that is getting the, the meal ready, everybody doing what they need to be doing, and Mary is sitting there listening to Jesus. Martha actually comes to Christ and says, Lord, will, will, you, will you make her work? I'm trying to get everything ready here. And Jesus says, Martha, you're concerned about many things. Mary has actually chosen the better part, and that will not be taken away from her. What really is the point? There are some things that are more important than others. And the flesh wants us to be distracted from them. That could be a lot of different things. Uh, applications on things like this are actually somewhat difficult because for each of us, being distracted means a lot of different things. But the distractions are there. And Satan, in his subtlety, as Paul has said in 2 Corinthians 11, Satan, in his subtlety, can take the main goal of life and actually derail that. And oftentimes in just little ways. The next thing you know, uh, the, the, the overall purpose of life, what you're doing and why you're doing it, should have been here and you're way off over here somewhere because you've been distracted away from what actually is, is true. Fourthly, the flesh turns sin into a cuddly pet. The flesh turns sin into a cuddly pet. 
And this is, this is an interesting idea. I heard a, a story, boy, it's been years ago now. A, a woman had actually gone on down into Mexico, had done a, some shopping right over the border from Texas into Mexico. As she was there, she found uh, what seemed to be a Chihuahua dog in the, in the ditch. Uh, looked like it, it was in trouble. So this woman uh, shouldn't have, but she did. She actually smuggled it back to the States, took it home. She was going to nurse it back to health. And, and after day after day, the, the dog did not seem to be getting any better at all. So she would bring it into her own room. She would you know, bring it into bed and try to nurse it back to health and so forth. And finally, after several days, you know, maybe out of guilt, I don't know, she finally decided to take it to the vet and to deal with the, the issue and try to help the, the dog. So she brings the dog in and uh, waits in the waiting room. And, and a few moments later, the vet comes out to speak with her and says, Ma'am, where, where did you get this animal? And she said, Well, to be honest with you, I was in Mexico. I saw it in the ditch and, and was concerned about it. I brought it back. I know that I shouldn't have, but I uh, brought it back and thought I could nurse it back to health. And the, the vet actually looked at her and said, Ma'am, that's not a dog. It's not a chihuahua like you were thinking. It's actually a Mexican river rat. You have, you have actually brought into your home something that could have eventually killed you. And it's interesting, oftentimes, the deceptiveness of sinfulness, something that doesn't seem that bad, something that doesn't seem that bad, or, all right, well, I know it's probably not the best, but I'll, I'll deal with it later. I'll just, I'll just put it off. And oftentimes we bring sinfulness into our hearts almost as if it's that pet. I really, really like this. I know that it, it, perhaps it's even wrong. Perhaps, uh, you know, it, it could be bad. But I'll deal with it later instead of dealing with it right now. Turn over to a, a passage, a uh, very important passage, I think, in dealing with this. Over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you will. Verses 29 and 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. Jesus is teaching at the Sermon on the Mount, and he says to the, to the followers, And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, and throw it far from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, and throw it far from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, what is, what is Jesus doing there? He's using a, a form of speech called hyperbole. He's, he's overstating his case so that, that all of us will be able to see the importance of what he's actually saying. So he's overstating it to the point where gouging out your eye or chopping your hand off, it's a picture of how radical we need to be with sin. Why? Because if we, if we take sin and feel like we can handle that sinfulness, it has a very devastating effect on our Christian walk, a very devastating effect in our relationship with Christ, and can end up actually leading to us walking away from Christ. So the flesh turns sin into a cuddly pet. This is tolerance versus hatred. We need to hate sin and not tolerate it, and not tolerate it really on any level. Next, number five, the flesh pumps up our heads and shrivels our hearts. 
The flesh pumps up our heads and shrivels our hearts. This is really knowledge versus practice. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8.1 says this, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The, really the spiritual arrogance at times of thinking that we have something uh, well in hand and the danger that that is for us. Why? Because arrogance, spiritual arrogance, is arrogance. Oftentimes as Christians we can, we can think, well, you know, that's, that's not that bad. Or, you know, almost, almost rationalize it in our mind to make something that we know isn't best, something that we know is a danger to us or to those who are around us, and actually, actually uh, arrogantly puffing up our heads and saying, well, that, that won't have any effect. That won't, that, won't, you know, that won't hurt me or harm me in any sense. But if you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when you read through Paul's argument concerning Christian liberty, and the things that the Corinthians were actually doing, it's an amazing thing. For them to actually think that they could go into an idol temple, that they could actually even participate in some sense in idolatry, is an arrogance. Why? Because the Apostle Paul actually tells them, because of your arrogance, because of your lack of love for your brethren at times, many of your brethren have actually turned back to idolatry. Because of that arrogance. Spiritual arrogance is a, is a huge dilemma for any of us. I know that uh, having gone through seminary, your, your pastor having gone through seminary for quite a few years and so forth, one of the, really one of the most profound things that I have noticed and I'm thankful for is the spiritual maturity of my professors, uh, for which I'm very thankful. Uh, my, my professor, even being Dr. Doran, and the humility that those men have. Uh, I, had to, I had to stand, when I graduated, and I don't know about your, your pastor, when I graduated with my Master of Divinity, I actually had to stand up in front of the professors and, and give a doctrinal defense, almost, a, almost an ordination council, but a, a little bit more based on uh, you know, what I was taught and so forth. And I honestly thought in my heart of hearts that the education that I had and, and so forth, it was going to be sufficient for me to go into that room. And I quickly found out these, these men could have played with me for a very long time with my mind. They were that intelligent. They would ask me a question, and I would give a simple answer. Then they would usually follow up with several other questions. And I had no idea what to even say. I just, I just stood there. I was like, I don't even know how to begin to answer that question. Why? Because they had actually thought it through so deeply that they knew the ins and outs of that question. And I was at a very surface level. And all the while, even though with that, that knowledge, remaining very humble servants of the Lord. It's a danger for any of us to think in our, in our minds that I have hit a certain level of spirituality that I don't need to regard the deceitfulness of the flesh anymore or to think of myself as being a better Christian than others, or think of myself as being superior to anybody in knowledge 
or in anything. Why? Because the flesh has got you at that point. Because the flesh loves you to be spiritually arrogant. Why? Because at that point, once I'm arrogant and I am, I am basing my life on my knowledge, I'm not practicing the humility that God has called us to. And at that point, we can be, we can be uh, very much influenced directly by sin. So these are, these are things that, for all of us, now I don't know for you, I know for me, several of them hit me right, right between the eyes. And that is on the, on the level of, of different aspects of the flesh and how it deals with our life. Probably not all of those are going to apply, but perhaps one of them does. And as we recognize the plans of the flesh, it's easier then for us to fight against the flesh. And that's how I would like to end this morning is how do I overcome the flesh? What would be some specific things that I can do in my heart uh, to recognize the plans of the flesh and then really have victory and obedience as I struggle? First, let's turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. <clears throat> James chapter 1 is a really a, a, a reflection upon those who are going through trials and how easy it is for those trials to actually turn into temptations. And James is teaching us, notice verse 13, James chapter 1 and verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. It's an interesting uh, imagery here in James, being, being tempted, carried away, and enticed. It really is the idea of uh, bait, fishing bait. And that is when you are putting that bait in front of the fish, it is going to cling to that bait. Why? Because it's something that it desires. It's something that it wants. But it's an inter interesting idea because James says that each one is tempted by his own lust or own desires. Now in a room like this, uh, for each of us it's different. Each of us is going to have a different besetting sin. Each of us is going to have a different set of things that we struggle against. But what James is trying to teach here is this. My temptations is my own, and I cannot be deceived by them. I cannot allow myself to come in first and say, God's tempting me. That would be a wrong answer, because we understand that God is not tempted and He does not tempt anyone. He is not enticing us to sin. How do I get enticed to sin? I get enticed to sin because I want something. And I can't see the danger behind it. So James is teaching us really that sin in and of itself is something that is very personal. And I need to own it. The, the application here would be I need to own my sin. And I cannot be deceived by it. I need to understand it and really commit to fight against it. And then lastly, please turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul here teaches us really a strategy for fighting against our own sinfulness by really incorporating in our minds the Word of God, thinking correctly. 
Notice uh, verses uh, 22 through 24, please. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. It says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Notice again for a moment that phrase, lusts of deceit, in verse 22. Because that's what our flesh is. It's deceitful. It wants us to embrace things that we know are wrong, but nonetheless are appealing to us. Thinking that nothing will happen, or thinking that I can overcome this later. But really, the overcoming, as we see here, is in verses 23 and 24 and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Really, how does that renewing come? The renewal that he's speaking of is simply this. We think God's thoughts. And how do we do that? By clearly understanding and heeding the word of God. So the the scriptures really are the renewal that he is talking about. To know, as, as Paul also puts it in Romans chapter 12, that we would renew our minds to know the perfect will of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Why? Ultimately because it's a mind issue. Isn't deceitfulness a mind issue? Isn't it something the way that you think? You think one thing, but it's really another. Uh, I've seen some card tricks, and I've seen some good tricks uh, that are just... Spellbinding. How, how did that happen? How, how did how did they do that? All of us have been deceived by those types of things. There's always a there's always a way behind it. We just don't understand it. Why? Because that trick has tricked us. And really, that's what our flesh has done as well in the lust of deceit. That's why we must think differently. And ultimately, I must think what God has said. That's why He says in verse 24, and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What truth is he referring to here? He's referring to his truth. Jesus said it, sanctify them, cause them to grow by thy truth. Why? Because your word is truth. So overcoming the flesh, obviously being, being aware of the way that it tempts us, being aware that all of us are going to be tempted and led away and really struggle with indwelling sin. But God doesn't leave us without strategy. He leaves us with the strategy of understanding the deceitfulness that it's my own, and I need to own that. And secondly, here in Ephesians, we understand that I am consistently, not once and for all, because all of us struggle, but consistently putting off the old man, the sins that I am really... uh, the sins that I am beset with by renewing our minds and putting on the new man, which is really in accordance with the truth of the Word of God. So this morning, as we look at the Word of God concerning our own spiritual growth, and really the tendency for each of us to want to get out of that, and wouldn't it be nice just to wake up one morning and that particular sin is gone? It would be great. Uh, It's not spiritual realism, though. That sin is going to be there unless by God's grace and through his strategy through the word of God, we can overcome that and consistently obey by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. 
Father, we are thankful for this morning. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us as we daily struggle with sin and growing in our Christian walks. We pray, Father, that you would be honored, that you would be pleased, Lord, to help us. Help us to overcome by the power of your Spirit. Help us to overcome, Lord, by understanding the flesh. And, Lord, help us to honor you. It is a great struggle, Father, uh, inside of our own sinfulness. And you understand the infirmities that we go through. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace, give us help, Lord, as we seek to please you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.